Welcome to the Kingdom Roots podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. My name is Laura Taro, and today on the podcast, we have Becky Castle Miller as our guest to talk about emotional health. Becky Castle Miller is a graduate of Northern Seminary. She wrote her thesis on Jesus's emotions. Becky is an author, and she is currently working with Scott on the Everyday Bible Study series. Becky, welcome to the podcast. It's so much fun to have you here. It's so fun to see you, Laura and Scott. I'm glad to be here. And Laura is in Arizona right now on a yes. little vacation, I assume. Yes, yeah, yes. So. and it's nice and warm here. Yeah, it's it looks nice outside, but it's actually like 32 right now, so it's cold. <laughs> Chris and I have both said today several times, it looks warm, but it's not. So, and I'm really glad Becky's with us. Um, we probably should have had Becky on a long time ago, but uh, but we're now just getting there. And Becky, uh, Becky came to us as a uh, she was serving in a church. Um, they were expats in the Netherlands, in Maastricht. And she all of a sudden shows up as one of our students and comes back for a week in the summer or came back and then had to endure taking classes at ungodly hours of the night. You know which one was the worst one, though? It was Fitch's class. <laughs> because, because I had to take it at 2 a.m. my time. Oh. 2 I know it was unbelievable because it was, it was a we, 7 p.m. in Chicago class. Yes, yes, <laughs> and and originally uh, the the deal was that all those courses for that program would be at 4 p.m., 4 to 6:40, whatever. So, but um, Becky did. Uh, she was a great classmate um, in the in the class with the other students. She has the uh, the gifts of networking and. Uh, chatting up with one another and getting to know people and making connections. So she really made the cohort a much better. And I think I've said this to her before, but it's very, it's, it's still just as true. It really helped the Northern experience to kind of set the gold standard for how cohorts work. And then um, our master's students do a thesis. Some of them do more academic theses, some a little bit more practical theses. And now we've got a couple other options uh, to go along with a thesis or, or instead of a thesis. And Becky worked on Jesus's emotions and developed a little bit of a theory of how emotions work. And I just thought her, I think her stuff is so helpful. And I thought it'd be good to have a conversation with her about some of this. So, Becky, I'd like to begin with um, if you would tell us a little bit about um, the theory of emotions and feelings. I think I can say it that way. I'm a little nervous about how I say these things because I'm typical thinking that emotions and feelings are about the same thing. And uh, I'd like you to sort of explain your theory for us uh, in a way that can help us all. Okay. Well, um, yeah, that thesis project was was really excellent. That was one of the main reasons I went to seminary was to to get the research skills to write that, to get your mentoring, Scott, as a writer, um, not a, not only as a New Testament scholar, but really as a writer, how to write for the church. So that was really a joy 
to work on. And I remember coming in with my thesis topic already on emotions. And you said, yeah, but you're a discipleship pastor. Why don't you do it on discipleship? And I went, uh, okay. So we ended up with a hybrid. It's about emotions and discipleship. <laughs> I don't remember that. I don't remember that conversation. I mean, so we I mean how many students do we have who bring in topics about theses? And some of them changed every semester. So Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it, it ended up being about emotions and Jesus' emotions, but then how do we apply that to our lives as followers of Jesus? How do we um how do we disciple our emotions? And that's really by the time I finally mm -hmm. got to writing the last chapter, I knew finally I knew what I actually wanted to say. So the last <laughs> chapter of my thesis is really where I got around to the idea of, okay, this is about discipling our emotions. So now I need to go back and write that book about discipling our emotions now that I've arrived there. And then eventually, hopefully a PhD dissertation on a similar topic. So, But I, I want to say this, this is the discovery of the writing process is it's not always, I know for me, it's never that I begin knowing every step of the way how I'm going to write it. It is, uh, so, well, some author said, how do I know what I think about that? I haven't even written about it yet. Hmm. That's, I think that is sort of your discovery process. As you wrote it, it finally came clear toward the end. And it almost gives you an opportunity to start all over again with that from the ending and it would reshape, but you've already got all the work there. So, hmm. so good. Okay. So, yeah. right. So emotions and feelings. So as I was working on this, I discovered that people, including myself, think we know what an emotion is. But when we try to define it, it's a really squirrely concept <laughs> to nail down. It, it's really hard to define emotion. And so there are 400 something theories of emotion or definitions of emotion just in psychology papers. Once you start bringing in neuroscience and philosophy, there's just so many definitions of emotion. So I decided it was important to nail down one definition of emotion that I was going to work with to try to understand Jesus' emotions in the Gospels. So I actually started writing my thesis following the theory of universal emotion by Paul Ekman. And then I got to about four months before my thesis was due, and I read some newer research that debunked his theory entirely. And I had to kind of start over from scratch on my science chapter, completely threw it out and started over again, because this new neuroscientific theory of constructed emotion from Lisa Feldman Barrett is very clear and very compelling. And she repeated all of Ekman's experiments and show, showed how they were faulty um, and actually came up with very different conclusions. So I started the research looking at emotion as universal. All people in all cultures have felt the same seven basic emotions. And there are biological fingerprints in our body that indicate what emotion we're experiencing. And it can be seen on our facial expressions and in other body systems. But that is that has really been disproven. So this newer theory of constructed emotion says that emotions are the meanings that we make from our physical sensations, drawing on concepts we've learned over time with a lot of prediction, like our brain is predicting what is about to happen. And that goes into our emotion construction too, because our emotion prepares us and motivates us to take action uh, out of like what's going on and what we need to be doing in a few seconds. So there's this whole process that goes into constructing an emotion. And Barrett's theory is that emotions are concepts in our brain. So 
I realized I had to disambiguate terms because in American English, we tend to say that feeling and emotion are completely interchangeable, that they mean the same thing. We can use them in place of each other. But uh, I realized that wasn't true when you're speaking with a clear definition like this one. So a feeling is the, the physical sensations that are going on inside our bodies. I might feel cold, but that's not an emotion. I might feel something fluttering out around in my gut, but that's not an emotion. That's a feeling. I might feel tears prickling in my nose, but again, that's a feeling. It's not until we give meaning to it that it becomes a constructed emotion. So an emotion is a meaning-making process, and it's this concept that's created in our brain. And we also have to disambiguate that from desire because a desire may have emotions connected to it, but desire and emotion are not the same thing. And so leaping ahead a little bit too far, um, I think some of the anti-emotionalism in the church is really anti-desire, but we can talk about that in a minute. But that's my basic difference between feeling and emotion and a really brief story about why I've settled on the constructed theory of emotion for my work. Okay, so Becky, what uh, what is, say, what is a feeling and then the meaning we give to it with the word with an emotion. So, uh, can you give an example? Mm -hmm. So, uh, all right. So, I I can't say I feel sad about the Ukraine. Sad is sadness an emotion? Is that sadness a is an emotion? And I think in common parlance, that's correct. I do. I feel an emotion. So, I think it's correct to say I feel angry. I feel sad. But I think it's incorrect to say that sadness is a feeling. So I feel an emotion, but that emotion is not just a feeling. It, it gets really messy with yeah, how yeah, we use everyday language versus how we would speak about it more scientifically. Yeah. Mm. So a feeling is the physical sensations that have no meaning other than that we have a, a capacity to translate that into an emotion that expresses that feeling. Yes. How'd I do? I think that's accurate as I understand okay. it. Okay. <laughs> All right. Now the question that uh, is interesting to me is why is this distinction important? It's important just for the sake of accuracy for one thing, right? Like language yeah. being precise, I think is important. Um, but it's also important to try to look at scripture or to look at a life of discipleship and speak clearly and accurately about what we're experiencing. Uh, so emotion is just a more precise word than feeling, which is why I use it. Yeah. Um, it's, it's just so easy to get loosey-goosey when we use the word feeling to maybe not be speaking about emotions and to uh, to not be applying this idea that emotions are constructed and that they are, they involve meaning. Um, yeah. I think in everyday life, it's okay to say, I'm feeling really sad that. right now, right? Yeah. But when we're writing about it, I want to be more precise and use the word emotion. Okay, now tell me this. Um, in a sense, why is this topic important to you? And what I really want you to talk about is how evangelicals have treated whether they're feelings or emotions, I think they tend to use the word feelings. Um, because I think in your research, this has been some of, the, for me, the, some of the most interesting stuff because 
I grew up, came of age as a Christian when some of this stuff was really at the top of the discussion. Well, well before either of your <laughs> days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I am actually working on a research project with a friend from Duke, Heather Griffin, um, about the history of this uh, anti-emotionalism in the American church. So I'm, I'm excited to do more on that. I did a little bit on it in my thesis chapter that was a little bit of kind of Jesus and John Wayne on emotions. What, what, is, what is the history of this in the church? What have books said? What have leaders said? What got us to where we are now? But I want to expand that more. Um, so the best illustration of this is the Four Spiritual Laws tract. If you remember, if you've seen the tract, if you look at the end of it, there's a diagram of a train. And the engine of the train is facts. The middle car is faith and the caboose is feelings. And it says it's essentially the the fifth spiritual law, don't trust your feelings. Wow. Now, I think this is in a salvation sense. You can be saved without having an emotional experience, which I think was a pushback against some of the early revivals, um, because it's true. You can be saved without feeling anything at all. But the way that it's written and it's been imported into our culture, mm-hmm. we now read that as an anti-emotionalism statement. And so so Christians are getting, or new Christians especially, are getting this gospel tract. And with the very message of, of salvation, they're also getting anti-emotionalism. Either they're married together in this tract. And that is, that's a problem. Um, so Heather and I are working on uh, doing a podcast about this, actually, that's going to be called um, Facts, Faith, Feels. <laughs> <laughs> and and talk to some scholars and trace the, the history of this a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's one of the the sources. This was written in the 1930s, and it still continues to impact our lives today. I think that tract has been printed 2 billion times. 1930s. You mean 1930s. The, the the four spiritual laws? Yeah, Bill Bright. Yeah, 1950s uh, with the Bill Bright with that. Uh, I, I think, yeah, the earlier versions of it was, was like 1933, but then it really got popularized. Okay. Interesting. Cause Bill Bright was, all right, that is that I don't remember this detail, but now you just, you just brought up Kristen Cobus Dume yep. and, um, uh, Jesus and John Wayne. Are you suggesting that anti-feelings, anti-emotions in the caboose is a way of putting women at the back of the at the back of the train? Is that what you're suggesting? Yes. I think that anti-emotionalism and anti-woman sentiment go together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that gets to answer your previous question. Why do I think this is a problem? Well, when our emotions are squashed and we're not allowed to express emotion, and especially women are coded as emotional and therefore as less reliable, uh, this makes women's testimony and women's experience in the church less valid, um, Mm. which is bad enough as it is. But then as we know and have talked about, that also creates environments where abuse can thrive. Because if women are not allowed to express anger at being abused, the anti-emotionalism actually keeps uh, abuse going on. It, it, you can't stop it if you're not allowed to protest it. So I think that that uh, uh, abusive structures, power over structures, uh, male-dominated structures are all kept in place by anti-emotionalism. 
Well, that's very, I mean, I, I think that this is a significant tie-in to Kristen Kovas Dume's work on masculinism. As the masculinism arises, um, emotions and feelings are distrusted and because men are supposed not to have as, as much feelings. Um, I think I told you this one time. When I was in junior high beginning to play on sports teams, one of the most important lessons that, let's say, instructions that we got was that we were not to be emotional in sporting mm-hmm. competitions. Uh, feel, you know, we didn't use the word feeling, but don't be emotional. Shut down. Um, you know, even if you did well, you were supposed to be calm about it. And the role models had sort of a stoic face about everything. Sort, of, I don't know. You're not old enough for this, but Bart Starr was sort of a, a star. I mean, yeah, he was a star. Um, he was a great quarterback, and he just never changed his physical. His face was always flat and concentrated. It became a role. Huh? Kind of like Bill Belichick. Yeah, Bill Belichick. There you go. And that would be a one always suppressing emotions. And this is sort mm-hmm. of stoicism, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, rather than Christianity. Right. So, um, but it w- when you were doing that, I just thought, you know, this is anti-emotionalism in that tract. And I, uh, did you look at the bird book? You know, the Holy Spirit one. Is that one uh, have emotion stuff in it? You know, uh, I haven't looked at that one. Okay. That was also one that was given to me in high school and it was, it was influential for me, but um, it just makes me think that the construction of the Christian life as a rational pursuit is an anti-woman, anti emotion. And I'm not saying women aren't rational and I'm not saying men aren't emotional, but there is a, there is a socio constructed theory of how men operate and how women operate that becomes dominant in that theory of Christianity that was definitely Mm anti-emotional. And that makes sense with Barrett's theory of emotion being socially constructed it is it is both socially constructed and it's constructed in our own brains. So the culture that we're in shapes our emotion concepts. So boys in our culture grow up with a certain set of emotion concepts that they are trained to have and to construct in themselves. And girls grow up with a set of emotion concepts that they're trained to construct in themselves. And so you end up with men and women expressing emotions differently, not because their brains are different, and they're naturally wired to express emotion differently, but because they were socialized into different emotion concepts. And that's why people in other cultures have different, um, you know, Italian men are very emotional, not because Italian men's brains are different, but because their culture has allowed them to develop a different range of emotion concepts. Yeah, we've been in Italy and they're animated, animated people. You think, calm down, you know. Uh, <laughs> And they would say, grow up, you know, the uh, the the biblical world, the Old Testament language. um, And the New Testament language can be very emotional or expressive of feelings. And 
I know that uh, one of your project, one of the focuses of your project is on Jesus and emotions. And I wonder if you could share with us some things that that this theory has allowed you to see in Jesus um, or any any text in the mm -hmm, Bible mm -hmm. that could that could help us. One thing that helped when I shifted from an idea of universal emotion to constructed emotion was realizing that Jesus's emotions were probably very different from mine. And even the words that the gospel writers use for emotion and the way that we translate them in English, we are probably mapping some of our current cultural ideas of emotion, even in the way we translate Jesus' mm -hmm. emotional experiences. Yeah. So it's, it's opened up that for me. I'm not looking at Jesus being surprised by the centurion and expecting that that's exactly the same as my concept of surprise um, because he's so far separated from me by culture, language, and emotion concepts. So it, it allows me to look at Jesus' emotions in a way that doesn't assume I know what he's feeling, but to say, what are the building blocks that might have led to his emotion concepts? And, and what is he expressing? I'm perceiving through distance and space in my own culture. I'm trying to perceive his emotions accurately. Um, so it makes me both less sure of his emotions and yet more understanding of them. Um, I think I bring fewer assumptions to the text when I use this theory of emotion. Okay, so uh, in my dissertation, this is a long time ago, before Star Wars. I don't know if you <laughs> people know how far along, how far back that was. Um, I had a, I, I worked quite a bit on the Greek word splanknizomai, where the normal translations are sort of. Um, he had compassion, or it used to be, uh, it used to be translated sort of bowels of mercy, uh, the old King James. Um, Jesus sees at the end of Matthew chapter nine all these people who are harassed and uh, ignored, spiritually abused by by uh, these spiritual leaders of the day. I mean, I think it's a clear case. <laughs> of what we would call spiritual abuse. And he sees these people and he is moved with compassion is a standard translation. How would you unpack that or look at that in light of, of uh, I don't know her name. I can't remember her whole name. Lisa Feldman Barrett. Yeah, there you go. Feldman Barrett's theory of constructed emotion. Part of her theory is that emotion is a motivating force. Um, so I think it fits really well in, our, in what we see Jesus doing. He is moved with compassion, which perfectly fits with this theory because it's saying that the emotion was preparing him to take action on behalf of the person he was feeling compassionate towards. So in that sense, it's a perfect illustration of emotion preparing us to, to take action. Um, emotion actually, as it's constructed in our brain, is preparing our body systems to move. So if we're constructing fear, our body gets ready to run or fight. Uh, and so if we're constructing compassion, our body is actually getting ready to take physical action to help the person that we feel pity or compassion for. So I think it makes sense from that. And then I think that she would say, okay, where did Jesus get this idea? Where is his emotion concept of compassion? coming from. Uh, and so then I would start looking at the pieces that go into that. 
reading a uh, second temple Judaism literature and saying what were common emotions or passions that were going on in the people. What was, what were the ideas around giving to the poor or healing the sick? What did that mean to people? Um, what did Jesus's mother have to say about this that might have influenced his emotion concepts? Um, what does Jesus know from the scriptures of what the prophets wrote about God's compassion and mercy? And then what does Jesus in his divinity know of God's compassion in himself? Um, and then all of those pieces come together for Jesus to construct compassion and to take action on behalf of someone that, that fits in with his mission. So I think our emotions come from our identity, our goals too. Like emotion moves us toward a goal. His mission is healing the sick. So of course his emotions will move him toward that goal. So all those pieces come together, those various parts of the theory to help us understand what's going on for Jesus here. How do you think the apostles knew that Jesus had compassion? I mean, they saw him heal. Okay. Um, he did. Do you think he said, Oh, I I have sensations, uh, my sensations. And he described them perfectly. You know, well, how, how did they know this? What do you think is the visible manifestation of compassion in Jesus that allowed someone to say he's a compassionate person? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that the disciples would generally have the same set of emotion concepts that Jesus had from growing up in the same culture. So they would also have built their own idea of compassion from reading the scripture and seeing what God is like and what God wants God's people to be like. And as they were trying to be faithful, I'm sure that all their lives, they would have tried to develop the idea of almsgiving and of caring for people who are hurting. So they probably had a lot of the same social and emotional concepts in themselves. So whatever was going on on Jesus's face or in his body language, which unfortunately the gospels don't record for us most of the time, we get some body language, but not enough to satisfy my curiosity. Um, sometimes they will include the details of, you know, him falling to the ground or um, especially in Gethsemane, mm -hmm. et cetera. Um, so I imagine that there was this shared perception of emotion going on with them where they just knew, oh, that's what compassion looks like on a person in our culture. So we recognize the culturally normal things that he's doing that show that he's being compassionate. Um, maybe a facial expression, maybe a body posture, maybe particular words he used that weren't recorded in the Gospels, and then maybe his actual actions. And perhaps he gave them talks about the importance of compassion that that aren't recorded for us. I'm sure as, he, as they walked along, you know, if I'm walking along and I see a homeless person like I remember last summer we were at um, Niagara Falls and my daughter Providence, who was seven at the time, saw a homeless guy begging for money. And she was very moved by this, like very disturbed. It was like the first time that homelessness came in her consciousness. And she was very like deeply grieved. Like we could see the change on her face and the body language as the sadness of what this person was experiencing went through her. And so we talked with her. We explained that some people are unhoused and and they do have to beg and here's what that looks like and here's how we can help and she went to the car and she got her own wallet and got her own little allowance out and went back and gave it to him and like i could see on her compassion mm -hmm. um and i had a conversation with her about 
compassion. And so I am sure that Jesus had similar conversations with his disciples about what it means to live a compassionate life. And then they saw him go and do it. I'm, I've often wondered if, um, if Jesus was, had tears in his eyes when he sees mm. these things. Mm. That would be, I mean, crying is a, is a pretty Jewish thing. I mean, it's a pretty human thing, but it's also pretty Jewish. Uh, so um, I was waiting for you to, uh, to um, express what you thought her theory of emotion would uh, generate for that. So that that's good. Um, there's a lot of emotion stuff in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. And you've made me more aware of this as I see, even as I've worked on my translation, as to see what words are probably blunted mm. by, by a, let's say, what do you call them? Our conceptual theories of proper mm -hmm. emotions or mm -hmm. something like that. And that probably shouldn't be blunted but should be given freedom to be expressed. So, mm -hmm. in uh, the other day, when Rebecca Eklund was doing her talk for Northern, um, I think you had to drop off the call, but I got a chance to ask her about some of her translation of Jesus' emotion words in Luke for the translation she's working on, and we were talking about several, including agonia in uh, in Luke's account of Gethsemane, and how it's it can't just be directly. Uh, translated into English agony because it means more like a struggle, not mm. just like deep anguish, like we feel it. So um, Jesus, his emotion concept there isn't just kind of inner anguish. It's it's an intense wrestling and struggling. And there's a piece of, oh, I was just working on this recently. Uh, there's some um, Greek mythological texts that use that word for the struggle of the gods. And so it's, I wonder if Luke pulled from, from um, uh, secular sources, you know, uh, pagan sources, in addition to show the sort of divine cosmic struggle that Jesus is going into, mm -hmm. maybe he's pulling from actual literature concepts outside of the Jewish tradition and has brought that into this picture of Jesus. And we completely miss that when we just translate agonia as our English concept of agony. Yeah, the our English word agony uh, should have that sense of struggle, but it's also used for the word con uh, a contest, uh, mm -hmm. let's say a race mm. in which you're struggling to beat somebody. And that's that's where the agonizo, my agonizo, agonia, that, that's, that word war has that sense of a contest to mm. a, a competition. So he's struggling to wrestle something down. Mm -hmm. So, and we miss that with our translation because we assume, I think, our own emotion concept onto him. Yeah, totally. Yeah, that's good. Totally, that's good. I think as I'm listening to you both talk, the questions I'm having are about how downplaying our emotions has impacted our understanding of our faith and the role of emotions in our relationship with God and with each other within the church. Um, but also I look forward, Becky, to reading more of your work and learning, um, what, what, how we can explore emotions in the con in the context of our faith, like how emotions can be helpful in defining our understanding of our faith and, and how they can equip us, um, mm. to live out our faith better and our particularly, um, 
in our connections to one another and in the way we relate to God. I think um, I keep coming back to this idea because I feel like it's echoing in a lot of places. But as pastors, um, encouraging people to bring their emotions to God, the full range of them, and not to feel like they have to present a certain way in the context of church. And, you know, when they pray to God, like you can bring all of the hard stuff too, that God welcomes that and expects that, and that that's part of the Christian experience. So I really appreciate your work in this area and I can't wait to see what you do so we can all benefit from it. So thank you. I really appreciate that. Well, we, we look forward to being with you next time on Kingdom Roots as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Thank you so much.